2: That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
3: From KQED.
1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... With efforts to disenfranchise black voters alive and well, political analyst Tiffany Cross says Democrats need to do more to engage this powerful voting bloc that was critical to the party's 2018 blue wave and yet continues to be taken for granted by the party and in media narratives. Cross, a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and a frequent commentator on MSNBC and CNN, joins us to remember Representative John Lewis, who made protecting voting rights a key part of his work, and she'll take your questions about the latest national political news. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The role of black voters in shaping and saving an American democratic system still determined to exclude them is a little understood and appreciated part of U.S. history, one that Tiffany Cross highlights in her new book, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. With November a few months away, Cross joins us to talk about the 2020 election, protests for racial justice, including the latest from Portland, and to remember civil rights giant John Lewis. Welcome to Forum, Tiffany Cross.
3: I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're really glad to have you. And, of course, there's a direct line between the work of Representative John Lewis and the power of Black voters today. First, what was your reaction to the news of his death?
3: Well, obviously, it was sad to see uh, Congressman John Lewis pass on. He was a torchbearer. And so the torchbearer passed, but in doing so, he passed the torch. And so it is time for a newer uh, generation of leaders to become equal to the task and address some of the inequality that John Lewis shed blood for. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of people alive today who say, you know, man, if I were alive in, in the 60s, or if I were alive during the civil rights era, this is what I would do. And whatever you're doing at this moment is the thing that you, you would do during the civil rights movement. And so I think in his passing, I hope it inspires people to join us on some of the front lines that uh, some of the activists have been on, um, and to uh, address inequality at the state, federal and local level. And whatever your reach is, you have an ability to, to make a difference. And so I think John Lewis reminds us of that. Uh, I wrote about him in, in my book, Say It Louder, uh, the skull fracture he suffered on Edmund Prettus, uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And I just wonder how many people would be willing to show up and, and, and knowing that you could get you know clubbed over the head with a nightstick and still show up and fight for justice and equality. And if we all live by his fiery passion, but also his empathetic compassion for people, I think we will uh, see great gains uh, in terms of our elections, but also just human kindness in terms of living in a society peacefully together.
1: Yes. And that point about what we do now with our time, um, there was this series of tweets, actually, that our local Congress member, Barbara Lee, tweeted out about Lewis. And she quotes him as saying, every generation leaves behind a legacy. What that legacy will be is determined by the people of that generation and what legacy do you want to leave behind. It's also been interesting, Tiffany Cross, just to see how how many people on both sides of the aisle are coming out to pay tribute to Lewis. I mean, he really right. did <laughs> seem to cross party lines.
3: Yes, he, he, he certainly did. But I would say... Um... You know, seeing people on both sides of the divide come out and offer their uh, condolences or warm remarks um, has struck me as a bit hypocritical, to be honest with you. I, I think it's um, baffling that you would have some Republican members of Congress uh, share their warm thoughts for, for Congressman Lewis while trying to undermine everything he stood for, while perpetuating GOP-led voter suppression, while uh, enacting policies that are disproportionately harmful to black and brown communities while supporting a president who is, by policy and by lingo, a white supremacist. And so um, I just, you know, I I think empty words have no meaning. Um, And also the fact that two of the Republican senators' words were so empty that they tweeted out pictures of Congressman Elijah Cummings, who, of course, died months earlier, Um, mistaking him for Congressman John Lewis. So I remain uh, unimpressed by those empty words and insulted by um, an empty effort.
1: And do you think that his death or at least them being called out for those things might, in fact, do anything for the Voting Rights Advancement Act that's been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk?
3: I think if something, uh, if we've learned nothing else these past four years, it's that this Republican Party has no shame uh, nor a spine. And so, unfortunately, no, I'm not hopeful that uh, this will impact voting rights at all, um, particularly when the leader of their party um, has been making false claims without offering any evidence of voter fraud. He's attacking mail-in balloting. So, unfortunately, um, we have not really seen the party stand up to him. Um, or even counter some of the false narratives that he's offered around voting. So sadly, no, I, I just, I cannot put my faith um, in, in any member of the Republican Party in Congress right now that they will do the right thing when it, terms, uh, when it comes to protecting our democracy.
1: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she referenced John Lewis in talking about the power of protest. And also to call out the Trump administration for its actions in Portland. I mean, as you know, videos posted on social media of federal officers seizing people and pulling them into unmarked vans. I mean, first, your take on this kind of response at the federal level. This is a preview.
3: I mean, you know, look, I know there are a lot of people who are surprised and frustrated and scared, but I would still say, look across the chasm to all the people in 2015 and 2016, and we're all standing here saying, we try to tell you. Donald Trump has not really surprised anybody who was paying attention to the rhetoric coming from his mouth on the campaign trail. This is someone who has made a tradition of celebrating dictators. He has painted peaceful protesters as anarchists. He has lied unapologetically around what is happening on the ground um, at at the policy level, the local policy level, uh, uh, from a party who purports to support small government. They are enacting martial law, essentially, um, secret police kidnapping people. This is something, imagine how we would cover something like this happening in Hong Kong or happening in another foreign country um, who is run by a dictator and compare and contrast that to how we're covering this today. This should be breaking news across all the networks 24 hours a day, because this is something that will only spread. when once a, Once someone takes hold of that type of power and the outcry is too small, they don't give that power back. They will continue to erode the pillars of our democracy until they are stopped. And so I feel uh, my heart goes out to people who have been impacted uh, by these secret police. Um, But I also think it allows us for another conversation around police brutality, around the secret police activity that's been happening as it relates to deportations and immigration with people showing up to members' home under the guise of, of law enforcement with Um, You know, employing some of the local law enforcement who's already at capacity um, in terms of their time and resources, employing them to act as uh, DHS immigration or ICE agents. Um, I think this is coming at a time when we are rethinking and reimagining public safety, and it highlights how dangerous, how dangerous this can be when a government turns on its own people and we're seeing it play out right before our eyes. And what will it take to make a national outcry from everybody to stop this kind of reckless behavior?
1: Yes, I'm being told right now, actually, that we're joined by Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman Lee, thanks for coming on Forum.
2: Yes. Uh, boy, thank you for inviting me to be with you. We were just on the floor paying tribute to our beloved um, warrior, uh, Congressman John Lewis. So I'm sorry I'm late.
1: Oh, no, that's all right. I know that he is a close friend. You've described him as a personal hero to you as well. I'm I'm very sorry for your loss. How are you, Congressman Lee? Well, you know, it's uh,
2: right now. It's, it's surreal. It's, it's shocking and I feel like you, we know there's a void. I feel that it's very real, and I keep thinking, what is the world like without John Lewis? How are we gonna uh, move forward? Then I feel inspired by the young people who have really taken the baton, and he got a chance to see that and witness that and be with them. So it, it's very um, emotional, you know. Everyone who knew John personally and loved him personally, like everyone who didn't. The emotions um, are up and down, up and down. And, um, you know, it's just such an honor, and I I feel so humbled to be able to have known him personally and to have been with him uh, on so many occasions, on so many special occasions. Uh, Most recently, we celebrated his 80th birthday, March 3rd, at the Capitol, and I think that was probably um, the last time I had a chance to really take a picture with him. You know, mm-hmm. so all of those uh, memories are coming back. When he came to my district, um, when uh, for 15 years I've taken young people on his pilgrimage to Montgomery, Selma, and Birmingham, and how he even this past uh, April w- with his health failing, and I was reluctant to even ask him to do this. In fact, I didn't, and he said, Barbara, I want to meet with your children, your young people. Talk to them, and he talked to them, Uh, during this period when he was not feeling well. And so Mm -hmm. he loved kids. He loved mentoring them. And he was very close to many people in in my congressional district.
1: Yes, when he's battling stage four cancer, what is the best way to honor him now, uh, Congressman Lee, in in your view?
2: Well, the best way to honor John Lewis is to continue to fight for for justice, for racial equity, for nonviolence, for passing the Voting Rights Act
1: to uh,
2: beat back and fight back against voter suppression, all these issues, John fought till he passed away. And, uh, you know, just personally, uh, he supported a resolution very recently that I introduced, calling for truth, racial healing, and transformation, and told me how important that was, and issued a wonderful, beautiful statement. And so I think all of us have so many efforts. We were working with John on, and I think for all of us personally, and for us in Congress, we have to continue with those efforts to make sure they get passed and signed into law. And for people who uh, love John and who are activists and who are not in Washington, D.C. and Congress, uh, John was really very connected to the movement and to Black Lives Matter and to our dreamers and to, you know, people who were trying to make uh, trying to make systemic change and to try to change the the soul of this country in terms of reclaiming it and trying to make life better for everyone.
1: And on the same weekend of his death, we also learn about these actions. I was just talking with Tiffany Cross about related to the way that the federal government has tried to squelch protests in Portland. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that before I let you go.
2: Well, you know, this is uh, a democracy, not a dictatorship. But this occupant in the White House continues to prove that he uh, really uh, identifies with how dictators operate. And it's shocking, Uh, I guess not surprising, but shocking to see this in our own country, where you have uh, people being rounded up and put in unmarked cars. (laughs) Come on. I mean, this is serious. And, you know, we've been working to try to make sure that minimally we don't transfer these weapons of war to the police departments. Uh, You know, this administration is an administration that is dangerous. Uh, It's militarizing uh, or it's trying to militarize uh, our uh, domestic policing uh, activities. And it's it's being as hypocritical as it could be when you look at other countries and how uh, this country prides itself on clamping down on human rights violations and on uh, dictators when people protest uh, and try and how dictators repress people and, and put people in jail for speaking out. Well, this administration is doing the same thing. And so I would just say, you know, we have to be very vigilant. As my young people say, we have to stay woke. But we have to remember these elections are about life and death, and we have to register to vote. We have to get organized, and we must vote in November to make sure they are not reelected because we're on the brink of something that's very dangerous and very scary. And I think just this latest move, sending um, troops to round up people, is an example of how uh, this administration views um, the presidency, which uh, is mind-boggling and dangerous and and really manifest the dictatorial uh, tendencies and policies and operations of the Trump administration.
1: Bay Area Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your memories and also your thoughts on this latest news. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. And thank you for covering the stories. It's so important that we have the truth being told about what's taking place in our country. And thank you for memorializing uh, John Lewis, as well as Reverend C.P. Vivian, uh, who came to yes. my district. We can't, agree, can't forget what a warrior for justice and peace and freedom he was. And he actually came to Oakland, got a chance to meet a lot of people who had known him but didn't really know him. And so, our um, Sympathies and condolences go out for Reverend uh, C.T. Vivian to Reverend C.T. Vivian's family, also as well as Congressman Lewis.
1: Yes, I'm so glad you brought up C.T. Vivian, who also worked, you know, as part of the Freedom Riders, and as you say, came here and and uh, I, I don't know if there's any more you want to say about C.T. Vivian before before you go.
2: Well, C.T. Vivian was uh, a powerful preacher, first of all, and we know that the civil rights movement you know, was actually led by uh, the faith community. But Reverend Vivian, as kind and gentle, just like with John Lewis as he was, he was strong and adamant about civil and human rights. And he used his platform uh, as a minister to really um, counsel and to mentor Dr. King and also John Lewis. And he was one of doctors. He was considered like a field um, marshal for Dr. King. And uh, I I was a personal friend of Reverend C.T. Vivian, so we were in contact. He was, uh, up until his end, uh, still uh, advising people, still lifting up Black Lives Matter, and still uh, really feeling good about what our young people are doing now. And my young people at the Martin Luther King Freedom Center got a chance to meet Reverend Vivian also in Alabama and uh, brought him to the East Bay and we had uh, a lecture series with him and people who did not know him got a chance to know and love him. This was several years ago and began to really recognize what a great, great human being he was. And so may he rest in peace along with uh, John Lewis.
1: I'm so sorry you've lost two friends Friday. Congresswoman Barberley, thank you. Thank you. And we're talking with Tiffany Cross. She's a political analyst, a resident fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics, author of the book, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. And uh, Tiffany Cross, I don't know if there's if you had anything to add with regard to what uh, Congressman Lee was saying that struck you or about C.T. Vivian.
3: Um, Well, I think she echoed a lot of the thoughts that I shared, and I would just add my um, warm remembrance for the Reverend T.T. Vivian. He lived such a full life. Uh, He was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, as was Dr. Martin Luther King, Um, so I know the fraternity is is mourning his loss as well, Um, and he was such a phenomenal uh, preacher, and I, I just, again, I would just say that it feels like you know, with the torch bearers passing, that they are really passing the torch. And I'm looking, while I mourn their loss, I'm looking forward to seeing the next generation of leaders elevate and escalate the conversations that we're having, um, bringing a racial reckoning centuries in the making.
1: Yes, and we are moving forward, facing this election in November. And as Congresswoman Lee was saying, you know, so much has to be done. This feels like a life or death situation. And of course, Tiffany Cross, you said that the path for victory for Biden, for example, is through Black voters. Can you talk about that?
3: Sure. So I think when you look at who it was who resurrected Biden's campaign... Um, it was the black voters of, of South Carolina. And I think there are too often, as I write about in my book, too often, political conversations tend to censor white people. And as the demographics change, the media landscape is going to have to catch up or they will get left behind. And the danger in that is that other people will look to other uh, outlets and resources to consume news and candidates get impacted by that. So much of what we know about our politics comes um, from media that filters a lot of this information, and that can come with consequences we saw with the Russian election interference. So I think with the, as it relates to the Biden campaign, it does appear sometimes that he is making this appeal to these quote unquote swing voters, which I don't really know what that is because if someone's on the fence at this point, you have to question what exactly are you waiting to swing towards. Um, and I think, you know, with some of the policy proposals, like how many of your policy proposals are speaking to the rising majority and not concerned about the mythical swing voters, which are really in the shrieking majority. And look, I wrote a book about black voters because that's what I know best, but I've navigated all communities of color for decades. And when we talk about diversity, we tend to talk about it, um, in black and white, literally and figuratively, pun intended. Um, but we also have to recognize that for the first time this year, the Latinx, community eclipsed uh, Black voters in terms of eligible voters, not registered voters. So we have to ask, why aren't they um, registering in in the same numbers? And I think a lot of that is because our campaigns and candidates reaching out to them. If not, they should be. Um, And Asian American Pacific Islander voters are the fastest growing demographic in this country who overwhelmingly don't identify with either party, yet not a lot of outreach there. There are Native American communities across this country that decide federal Federal races in, in North Dakota and Arizona and New Mexico, and so um, I I hope that the Biden campaign is recognizing that um, the the political landscape looks a lot different than it did in two thousand eight, and that the Democratic Party has not won the majority white vote since nineteen sixty four. The last time. There was a significant white vote was in 1976 when the electorate was 89% white. And it just does not look like that anymore. And the thing is that baffles my mind, when you vote with an interest of communities of color in mind, everybody wins. It doesn't have to be that these communities of color have gotten something and taken away from someone else. These are our uh, policy Um, proposals that benefit everybody as it has always been. So a lot of this opposition is not that I so disagree with this policy proposal. It's that government is by the people, of the people, and for the people until for the people start to include people who don't look like me. Then all of a sudden it's a problem. And I think we have to combat that uh, and confront that in in this country as we're reimagining what America looks like.
1: I mean, it is so interesting, right? The numbers really do show that, what you're saying exactly, that if you invest in communities of color and the loyalty with which they do tend to vote Democratic, that it would just make sense. And you've touched on a lot of the reasons that you think in part drives this lack of investment or reaching out to these communities as well. But I mean, what else drives that? Is it just this, as you say, inability to sort of get rid of this idea that you really have to appeal to White voters in swing states? Is it donor driven? I mean,
3: I think it's all the above. I don't know that we can point to one thing, but. You know, obviously, I focus on media and the great influence that has. But the donor class is also largely white and male, and one thing tends to feed the other. And so, when you have a media landscape that's centering white people around every conversation, and they, you know, also focus on candidates that look like them or candidates that they find electable, that feeds the donor class, and so they're going to contribute to campaigns that the media has told them these are the people who are electable. So we really have to disrupt the system at large at every touch point. Um, there. Are so many ways that people could be reaching out to black voters and even when they do that sometimes the effort seems clandestine
1: We're talking with Tiffany Cross. Her new book is Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. And I want you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. With your questions for Tiffany Cross, questions about election 2020, the state of the electorate heading into November, you can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Political analyst Tiffany Cross says black voters in key swing states hold significant power heading into November. And in her new book, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy, she looks at the role Black Americans have played in shaping and saving U.S. democracy throughout history, and how little it's been valued by the political class and the mainstream media. If you want to join our conversation with Tiffany Cross, the number is 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at KQED. Dot org. and let me go to Shabazz in Oakland to start us off. Hi, Shabazz.
4: Uh, good morning. Um, uh, good morning to you, Ms. Cross. I see you all the time on MSNBC, and uh, great to be able to talk to you uh, directly. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to on the on the Voting Rights Act. You know, we know that one of the first things that Chief Justice John Roberts did was to. Uh, relieved, removed the part that provided protection uh, for people uh, 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 in the voting process. And I'm wondering if, uh, can Congress override uh, the uh, Supreme Court on certain issues? And, and if so, is this issue part of one of those things that Congress could, seeing, seeing how uh, that uh, voter suppression is so prevalent now, And in in America, uh, would it be uh, it seemed like every time that something happens that we don't like, the Democrats start an investigation. I'm so sick and tired of the investigation as opposed to direct action. It's like, my goodness, you know, and uh, last but not least, uh, since uh, President Trump uses the military and everything that he does, seemingly, uh, do you think that uh, if he loses the election, He's already said that he won't go uh, peacefully. Do you think the military should walk him out?
1: Shabazz, Um, thanks. (laughs) Tiffany Cross, a lot to unpack there. Yeah,
3: so let me first address voting rights. So um, no, Congress cannot override the Supreme Court. We have three branches of government and they are all co-equal and one, as it works, should not be able to override the other. However, we have seen in recent administrations this uh, including the the Trump administration through the process of executive orders. we've seen this um, theory, this this understanding, uh, this constitutional mandate. Um, pushed to the to the limit, so we'll see. Now, when the Supreme Court struck down Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, that said, "Hey, these jurisdictions have a history of suppressing votes. You need to check in with the federal government before making these guidelines." That went away. So, what Congress has then tried to do is introduce uh, or push for a bill imposing similar restrictions uh, and allowing the Justice Department to appoint election observers um, to be passed by the Senate after um, it it passed the Democratic-controlled House in 2019. So this is why I'm frustrated with a lot of the Republicans um, on the GOP side of the aisle tweeting out their remorse and and sympathies for the Lewis family while working to undermine his work. It's interesting because just today, um, several Democrats are calling for the bill to be renamed in honor of uh, John Lewis, who, of course, is just an amazing um person and, and has fought long fought for voting rights so um y- you know and i hear your frustration and i just want to be really clear a lot of people say well what are democrats doing they're investigating this and look the democratic majority in the house can walk and chew them at the same time the investigations were in fact very important because while there may be some sects of our electorate that has been dumbed down and brought into these false narratives put out by this, you know, MAGA cult like following. Um, there are still some intellectually people, uh, intellectually curious people, out there who want to know how the Trump administration um, potentially violated law. And if you read any page, any chapter of the Mueller report, there's almost something in every paragraph that can shock you, that can surprise you um, for people who claim to be patriots to to defend this behavior and support this behavior. So I I think the investigations are important. What was happening at that time, Democratic members, because I covered it as a journalist, they were passing multiple laws. They were pushing, or not multiple laws, they were passing multiple bills and pushing multiple policies that had a positive impact on the rising majority of this country. However. That the, A lot of that those bills, uh, those, the, the pieces of legislation, would fall flat in a Republican-controlled Senate, which is why down-ballot races count. This is why this election, we have to remember, it's a presidential election, but also up for grabs is the House and the upper chamber, the Senate. So please don't ever think that Democrats weren't doing work. They were. They just um, were handicapped by an obstructionist Senate, unfortunately. Now, Trump has repeatedly said that he will question the election results. He has tried to perpetuate a false narrative about voting fraud. He did that even when he won. So we ought to to anticipate the similar behavior heightened um, by some of his acolytes should he lose come November. The military has an obligation to walk him out. Um, He cannot decide that he's just going to stay. And there are actually laws that if any member of his cabinet or any member of the United States government try to aid him in staying, that they will have legal consequence as well. The challenge is, will we know the results on November 3rd? Will we know who our next president is going to be? And this is not a decisive victory that even should Trump say, hey, I'm questioning these results. This has to be an overwhelming victory. A law just passed that the Electoral College has to vote for the people in their their, their state elected. So if this is not an overwhelming victory, we could be looking at another Bush v. Gore. And that was a decision I also covered when I was at CNN at the time. So we could potentially go weeks without knowing who our next president is going to be. And we also have to be mindful that a lot of the Trump supporters have threatened violence if he has tried to be, if he's tried uh, to be removed from office. So we've got a lot of challenges uh, facing us this election and we have to be vigilant and prepared um, for a fight in many senses of the word. And I'm not, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I think we, given what we've seen the past 4 years it could potentially be violence in, in certain areas of the country and we have to be prepared for that as well
1: well certainly election analysts have talked about how you know a large Winning by a large margin could be possible if both women and communities of color, particularly black voters, are energized in 2020, as they appear to be, especially with some of the recent races where black candidates have fared extremely well against longtime incumbents. Of course, one of the things that you've also talked about, Tiffany Cross, is the importance of the VP pick. And I have this comment from Jasmine, who writes regarding Biden's vice president pick. Can you please talk about actual issues? Kamala Harris's political views and record are much different from Barbara Lee's or Nina Turner's for example I find most of the conversations around the need for Biden to choose a black a black woman for VP to be very shallow there is rarely any discussion around their actual records identity politics only takes us so far first what's your response to Jasmine here
3: well i would just first say to jasmine i don't know what you mean when you say identity politics um it's that seems to be only something that's attributed to people of color, um, as though white economic anxiety, the false narrative that was pushed for many years, wasn't identity politics. As when we say things like NASCAR moms and soccer. Um, or NASCAR dads and soccer moms, as though that's not identity politics. So I reject uh, some of the terminology that she uses. I would also reject the notion that there have not been uh, policy discussions um, around the the VP pick. I think certainly there has. Now, if you're looking for cable news sound bites or clips that go viral that that get into um, policy discussions, perhaps not, but certainly the Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post, there have been plenty of uh, papers, the San Francisco Chronicle I'd imagine as well, There have been plenty of uh, print outlets that have um, juxtaposed candidates and have uh, written extensively. Um, Erin Haynes, who's a reporter at the 19th, has also written extensively about the policy discussion. So perhaps widen um, some of the conversations. I penned an op-ed for the Washington Post with uh, my friends and colleagues, Sunny Hasen at The View, Angela Rye of CNN, the actress Amanda Seals, Brittany Packnett, the activist, also an MSNBC contributor, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, Um, and Alicia Garza, who founded um, Black Lives Matter. And we certainly went through policy proposals and also included a policy agenda. Um, The question has never been how black is the VP um, nominee, but how black are your policies? And so certainly I think a black woman running mate has the ability to energize a base um, because we have to be honest, Joe Biden, is not that exciting a candidate to the masses. And if we want this to be a decisive victory, we have to have something to excite the people. And a vote against Trump uh, is not always enough. Biden should want people to vote for him and be enthusiastic about voting for him, particularly in a moment where we are reimagining America. It is not the time to make safe choices. Make a bold step and excite the people. Dance with the ones who brung you. Energize me. When you see a lot of the focus on, hey, I can win red states. Hey, I can win back some of these Trump supporters. Oh, what a slap in the face to the black people who resurrected you, who upheld you. And so when we hear things like that, we have to say, yeah, you've promised us a Supreme Court justice, but for years, we had an all white Supreme Court. For years, we had an all white uh, president and vice president. For years, we've had a majority white Congress. What is wrong with the black constituency who sit at the epicenter of political power to say, hey, we want someone who looks like the people who help elect you, and we want that person to be uh, responsible for adopting an agenda that comprehensively addresses issues as it relates to us. We don't have a problem when evangelicals make these demands. We don't have a problem when the gun lobby makes these demands. We don't have a problem when educators make these demands, but when black people who disproportionately uphold this party, this democracy in this country, start saying, hey, we have saved this nation more times than we can account. We have saved this nation from itself at times. It is time that representative government starts to represent us. I don't understand the pushback we get for that, but I think that includes certainly a lot of policy um, discussion. And if, if, if I could get into it, but I don't want to take up the whole program. <laughs> but though I certainly have some policy proposals off the top of my head, uh, but I know that we have other callers to get to. But I'd be happy to expand on that if we had time. But you but let just me
1: know. <laughs> one one quick follow up though, and if. Biden doesn't choose a black woman VP. I mean, what kind of impact do you think it will have? Especially since, I mean, James Clapper at one point made it sound like this was not an absolute requirement for him. It seemed he seemed to sort of be walking back earlier statements that it was. I mean, what do you think the response would be?
3: And also knowing they're...
1: that the black black voters are not a monolith. <laughs>
3: Right. And I was going to make that point. We're not a homogenous group of people. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people who feel like um, James Clyburn, who feel like, no, you know, because there, I think so many voters because... Black voters in particular have been so historically brutalized by this country that people vote out of fear and they worry, like, don't ask for too much. He's already said he'll give us a Supreme Court justice, like, let him do what he does. Well, I don't ascribe to that. I'm all about creating a democracy that empowers its people, not a government to create power over its people. And so when we want power to the people. We want somebody who can represent political points that matter to us. And I understand how um, uh, Leader Clyburn may feel, but there is a generational divide in some of these things. And so he certainly does not speak for um, the rising majority of uh, the younger, newer voters coming into the electorate. I mean, I think for them, the historic presidency of Barack Obama was their ceiling, not their floor. So they're not looking at we should be so safe, and we should try to get something, you know, that's going to make everybody else comfortable. They're saying no. Like it's not even a big deal to have a black woman running away. We care about what policy proposals she's putting forth. So I thought I honestly was disappointed um, uh, that that uh, Leader Fibrin said that, but um, obviously he uh, has has a, a right to his uh, opinion. I think there was a second part of your question, and I went off on a tangent. And uh, <laughs> I want to make sure I answered you.
1: Uh, no, I think you actually really did answer it. And, and you're right, I should get to some more calls. Let me bring Jake from Oakland into the conversation. Hi, Jake, join us.
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm curious um, what your guest feels about the Electoral College, seeing as uh, a lot of voters of color are you know, uh, congregated or, or concentrated in states that are already heavily Democratic-leaning, uh, the obvious example here being California.
1: Thanks, Jake. Uh, the Electoral College, uh, Tiffany Cross. Yeah, I think, um, again, I
3: will keep saying this. It is a great time to reimagine America because the Electoral College disproportionately benefits whiter states. And uh, it's just somewhat antiquated. You know, I I think it's um, time that we we have to get rid of the Electoral College. Um, I, I, I think not enough people understand the relationship between the Electoral College and the popular vote. Um, the founding fathers created this in large part because they feared voters would not know all the candidates. And I think, you know, this, this election cycle, we had 20 something um, presidents run, but this is, they created this at a time where there was not, um, you know, media at our fingertips, that there was not access to information Um, in an era where, you know, when the founding fathers created this, it was people didn't travel, you know, people weren't going to California from from New York, and so um, it just by every measure, it is just an antiquated notion and ridiculous that it has, it's something that still has uh, so much um, influence over our elections. And when you look at historically um, how um, decisions are, are, are made, the fact that we're pulling from something that was centuries ago um, has not benefited its, its people, and not just communities of color, it has not benefited America. Um, This is, uh, I want to say the third time, somebody should fact check me there, but this may be the third time that a presidential candidate has won the popular vote and lost the election. And that directly goes against the will of the people.
1: Well, Beth writes, voters vote their interests. Voters age 60 and over seem to be the most reliable voters. Swing voters are often independent, no-party voters who vote for specific issues. But I'm concerned that some will not vote at all because Biden is not liberal enough. This concerns me. I mean, What are the chances of that, do you think, Tiffany Cross? I mean, is that something that you're partly warning about to some extent?
3: Definitely. I think we have to be honest that for most people, for most rational, seeing, thinking, hearing people, this is not an election. Uh, a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is a choice between Joe Biden or stay home. There are so many people who have survived white supremacists in the White House. There are so many people who have lived through policies that had an adverse effect on their lives. And so it's the job of um, you know activists out there to convince people how policy impacts them. If we don't have help from the top of the ticket, it makes the job that much harder for activists on the ground who are trying to, you know, amp up GOTV efforts. And so when you're trying to convince people to get out to vote, for some people, the idea of 2008 Joe Biden, who stood alongside the first black president this country ever elected, is appealing. For others, the reality of a 2020 Joe Biden um, running for president to make history as one of the oldest people to enter the White House at 78 is not an exciting choice. And so, not only do we have to consider that um, as it relates to running mate, we have to consider what Congress looks like. So Joe Biden could be facing an increasingly progressive Congress. You have folks like Richie Torres and Jamal Bowman um, out of New York who who unseat incumbents, um, you you know, as progressives. And so, uh, you know, it's a landscape where I think Joe Biden um, is 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 running from an old playbook. And that's not to say that I want to be very clear. This is not to say that the choice is difficult between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Any rational adult would be exponentially better than what we have in the White House. So my choice is clear, but for people who don't always see the direct connection and the direct correlation between the state of their lives and the everyday decisions they make and federal policy, we have to make them understand, and not only understand, but be outraged, and not only be outraged, but be inspired, and not only be inspired, but be motivated on November 3rd to fill out these mail-in ballots or to physically show up and cast a ballot. And the unholy trinity that we'll face from the GOP-led voter suppression to foreign election interference that specifically targets Black voters, so the fallout of COVID-19, we've got enough hurdles to overcome that we're just saying, make our job easier to make the American people get excited to help get this country back on course.
1: Well, one last point about this from Paul. Given Mr. Biden's age, I think the VP choice should be whoever they think the electorate would be comfortable with as president. Personally, I want to selfishly retain Ms. Harris as our senator, but I'm pretty comfortable with all the others named so far. Let me go to Dan in Santa Clara. Hi, Dan.
2: Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. First, I'd just like to say I love your guest, a Smith-Bag Democrat,
1: to the on it and I'll
2: vote for it. So I think Biden's great, but I love the conversation we're having. This is exactly what we need in our party. What I'd like is your guest to speak to these uh, technically legal, I suppose, but thoroughly unconstitutional actions being taken in Portland. This stuff is completely outrageous. Uh, unmarked vans, unmarked police officers running along and nabbing people off the street. Please let me know what you think. Thank you.
1: Well, Dan, thanks. And it it does sound like there is a big question of legality. I mean, I know that uh, I believe the attorney general in Oregon is is trying to challenge these actions.
3: Yeah. um, And it it does not sound legal to me. The New York Times did a more extensive piece, um, I think, this morning on the um, legal questions around it. But federal agents. Um, including Trump's um, Homeland Security Department, are essentially terrorizing the community and threatening lives and attacking protesters um, who are demonstrating against police brutality. So these militarized forces um, are, are certainly uh, are problematic um, at, at, at best and illegal at worst. And like I said, I, I write extensively in my book about um, how law enforcement has swollen their ranks Um, through white supremacy over the years, and I I don't um, have time because I'll take up the the whole time if I try to get into it. But I would also just say that Oregon itself has a very um, racist history, and it was actually designed to exclude black people from ever living there. And so when a state is rooted in that kind of policy, even though the state itself is saying we don't want this, Mayor Tom Wheeler has been saying they have only escalated this problem. Um, it just shows, though, the systemic racism on, on which this, this country was founded and, and built. Um, and this all stems from law enforcement brutalizing Black people and, to uh, a, a lesser degree, and more recently, brown people. So I, I'm devastated at this, and I think we ought to take it seriously because this is, this is also a virus. You know, we have COVID-19 plaguing us, but this is a virus that can also spread, and how long before we have other communities and other um, Trump acolytes who've been elected governor or mayor or congressman across the country before they start to employ these tactics. We have to send a clear message, this is not acceptable and a free people will not stand for this kind of brutalization to its own citizens.
1: And again, Tiffany Cross, her new book, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy, a resident fellow, a 2020 resident fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics and also a frequent political commentator on MSNBC, CNN, SiriusXM. And she is on forum with all of us. Seamus writes, what with the disproportionate effects of COVID on people of color, specifically Black and Latino communities, could continued mis management and disregard for these unequal impacts be regarded as a form of voter suppression. Come November, Tiffany cross.
3: I regard it as such right now. Um, I actually write about some elements of this. Obviously I was writing the book at a a time that COVID-19 was not the global plague it is today, Uh, but I actually point out how um, the, the, the efforts of voter suppression take on different forms. And, you know, this could definitely make it easier for States like Florida and Georgia, who have already been very out front um, on, on suppressing the votes with Ron DeSantis in Florida and Brian Kemp in Georgia, who is, um, you know, who has in, who's literally jailed Black people for running for office and winning. Um, I won't tell that story because I'll, I'll take up too much time, but if you want it, you should buy the book because I, I talk about it. Um, but yes, COVID-19 will certainly aid in GOP-led voter suppression and also in foreign election interference. Now, voter suppression has always been an issue in the Black community. We've seen recently... Um, that the media just started paying attention. So when we see in Wisconsin voters waiting in long lines and in the rain just to participate in democracy, a lot of people were shocked by this. But this is nothing new. This is something that has happened throughout history for centuries. Um, Even after the Voting Rights Act passed, there was rampant voter suppression that always took place. And most Black communities, you don't go in and out and vote. The voting lines are always long. People, thousands of people are purged from the polls. But it did not become a story in the mainstream media until it impacted white people people until Donald Trump started saying, I'm going to go after mail-in ballots. And that's when white folks said, oh, wait a second, my grandmother uses this. I use this. Donald Trump himself uses this. Why are we employing mail-in ballots? Because we're dealing with a global plague that is literally taking lives. So as long as he is attacking mail-in ballots, threatening to not accept the election results, threatening our tradition of a peaceful transition to power, yes, absolutely, that is a pure, clear example of voter suppression.
1: Well, let me go to Donna in Sonoma. Next, hi, Donna. Hi, Donna, are you oh, with us? okay. Yeah, you're on. Hello? Yep, you're on, Donna. Go right ahead.
0: Hi, yeah, um, my
1: name is Donna. I'm from Sonoma. And my question is,
0: I uh, understand from Friday there was a decision in Florida that felons are not
1: going uh, to be able to vote. Donna, unfortunately, your line is a little rough, but I think what I'm hearing is you're I asking a question. question about the Supreme Court decision regarding people convicted of felonies in Florida
3: yes, not able to I regain the her. vote. Do
1: you want to talk about that, Tiffany Cross?
3: Yes. Thank you, Don. I I heard most of it. So I hope I'm answering your question. So yes, uh, I write extensively in this uh, about this in my book. Um, I have a whole chapter uh, called Florida man. So I hope people will will read it, but, um, yes, Ron DeSantis, um, is specifically targeting amendment Four. amendment Four um, is something that passed in 2018 when the voters of Florida said, yes, these voters ought to be able, um, to cast ballots, um, even though they were previously convicted of um felons now the way that law ever got into into place is because um the people of florida were trying to figure out a way after slavery to keep black people from the ballot box so this law has gone on for decades and when people finally decided um to vote uh, against it to undo the law It got um, voted for overwhelmingly. And I thought that was very strange. However, um, after it passed, immediately the government tried to undermine the will of the people and um, challenge it in court. What was happening is they essentially said, okay, all of these people who were previously convicted of felons can vote, but you have to pay all your court fees. You have to pay um, any attorney fees. It was essentially a poll tax. So you have to come up with this money. Now imagine somebody coming out Um, of of prison with the challenges already with the ban the box legislation and people can't get employed after being um, uh, convicted of of felons with an unforgiving uh, criminal justice system that disproportionately criminalizes black and brown people imagine how difficult it could be to pay off those fines and those Florida is very uh, aggressive with the fines so you know this law has been in place since 1868 Florida Uh, It's not a $20 fee here. They are the national leader in racking up financial penalties, which have really become a a top source of revenue for the state. So they don't want to get rid of that. One of the Florida um, outlets I interviewed when I was writing the book uh, reported that more than $1 billion in felony fines were issued between 2013 and 2018. So this is what's at the root. Of people denying uh, the right to vote for for people previously convicted of felonies. They don't want a a disproportionate amount of people of color to the ballot box, but they also want to depress and oppress um, black and brown people financially to keep them from the ballot box. So it's devastating that the courts have sided with Ron DeSantis in his effort to suppress the votes. And Florida being a battleground state Um, which will have a lot of eyes on it this go-round. I I just think it's going to be pandemonium, unfortunately, trying to get the, the government to uphold the will of the people.
1: Our producer who screened the call is telling me that Donna wanted to say that Tom Steyer or some other wealthy person should pay the fees so that they can vote. And I mean generally here really with regard to trying to address voter suppression efforts, it really does take resources and that's something that it feels like is still hard to come by for groups that are really trying to mobilize voters of color.
3: Yeah, so um, there are some who have, you know, done very well. There are a lot of groups on the ground doing amazing work. Um, One woman, I I followed her organization around and interviewed her extensively for the book is Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter. She's working in every southern state in the country and is also working in two swing states. Um, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. They are also very out front. Um, The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. These are all groups who have 800 numbers. Um, You can call if you have any issues or questions around voting, and I encourage people to do so.
1: Well, I think you just answered one of our listeners' questions who wants to know where to start in terms of learning more about how to get involved. Tiffany Cross, thank you so much for coming on Forum. Really appreciate having you on and hearing your analysis.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This was so awesome.
1: Tiffany Cross, her book is Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. Ariana Prell produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much.